morning. I'm not used to the headset retainer thing here. I struggled with it during the Sunday school hour. I think it's still not right, bro. I don't know. Does this mean that I have like fat cheeks or something? I don't. Craig said it's beautiful. That's the word he used. Okay. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. All right. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, Super happy to be with you here this morning after four years of not seeing you in person. And we're only sorry that our visit this time around is so short. We're just here for a couple days. In fact, uh, we're going to have a quick lunch after the service, and then my wife and I are headed off to Phoenix, where we're going to go visit uh, Sovereign Grace the Church there in Phoenix, where Nathaniel Hutchison is one of the pastors. Uh, Nathaniel and I overlapped a little bit uh, in the intern program in GBC years ago, so it'll be a joy to see them as well. But we're really happy to be here with you this morning. I should begin by saying that my original plan was to wear a sport coat, but I was told not to do that. And then I received further instructions that I really ought to wear my shirt untucked. And then somebody told me that Frank Kaser's shirt is untucked. Yes. Frank, I always knew you had a little bit of hipster in you. (laughs) You go away from GBC for four years and look what happens, yeah. Let's read our text this morning. It's from Genesis 21. It's in your bulletins. It's also on page 15 of the Pew Bible. And as I was looking at this just a minute ago, I realized this is a different version from the one that I've got integrated into my sermon. So I may just make a little comment as I'm reading along here. Um, Anyhow, so I should be wearing my glasses. Oh, (laughs) I'm resisting. I've been told that I, I, I have reading glasses, and I'm told I'm going to need glasses to work on my computer and to see far, and I'm resisting. I'm holding off as long as I can, working those eye muscles. Here we go. Genesis 21, 8 through 21. And the child grew and was weaned. The child is Isaac. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Just one little comment here. I don't know what versions you're reading from this morning, but some versions will translate that as mocking. And that's, that'll be important. We'll talk about that later. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman, Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite of him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation." 
Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave it, gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Well, may God add his blessing to his word and help us to understand this passage. So you may be surprised that I'm preaching from this passage this morning. I was surprised when a few years back in our preaching rotation in our church in Spain, I was assigned this passage. (laughs) I opened up my Bible on Monday morning and I read it and I said, what in the world does this have to do with Christian living in the 21st century? Uh, What am I going to say on Sunday? But I was further surprised as I dug into the text and I started to study and I The more I study, the more I realize that this text is profoundly relevant for us today as Christians. And there's two things that I want to draw out of it and explain to you this morning. The first is that God shows us in Genesis 21 that he will save, he will accomplish his purposes of restoring a broken world and bringing wayward people to himself according to his initiative and his provision not by human effort. That's point number one. You can all go home now. <laughs> that's, that's huge. And that's all in Genesis 21, as we'll see. Number two, we'll see in this passage that obedience to God comes by and is motivated by faith in Him. So those are the two points that we're going to talk about this morning. The sermon has just two points. Now, let's start. In Genesis, people laugh. If you've read through Genesis, maybe you've noticed that. People laugh, but not always for the right reasons. So think about the time when God told Abraham that he would have a son with Sarah. That's in Genesis 18, just a few chapters before the passage that we read just a minute ago. Sarah was barren. She had no children. And when God spoke to Abraham, she was up there in years. She was past the childbearing age. How did Sarah respond? Well, thinking that her, her having a child herself was impossible, she laughed. But she didn't laugh for joy. Her laugh was in unbelief, maybe even sarcastic. You can imagine her thinking to herself, after all these years, I'm old, I'm worn out, how am I going to have a child? Abe and I are like dinosaurs. It's just not going to happen. But nothing's impossible for God. So in Genesis 21, we see the fulfillment of God's promise. And just a couple verses before the passage that we read in in Genesis 21, 6, when Isaac is born, Sarah laughs. She laughs again. But now she laughs for joy because God has finally fulfilled his promise. And it's interesting because God knew that she was going to laugh for joy. And he told Abraham some chapters before, you're going to name your son Isaac. And Isaac means he laughs. Well, a few years later, Abraham threw a party for Isaac. And as we see in verse 8, the child grew, he was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Have any of you ever been to a weaning party? (laughs) I mean, in Spain, just about anything is a good excuse to have a party. But I have to say, I've never been to a weaning party. So what's going on here? Well, I have to keep in mind that years ago, the infant mortality rate was much higher than it is now. And for a child to survive the first two or three years of its life and be weaned from its mother was cause for celebration because at that point, 
the child was more independent, was stronger and healthy. It was more likely that he would survive. So Abraham throws a party for Isaac as he's being weaned. But it wasn't all fun and games that day. Ishmael was at the party too. Ishmael is is laughing. He's laughing at Isaac. He's mocking him. And the way we know that is that he he was out of line. We know that because Paul says in the text from Galatians that we read that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. So Ishmael was hard on him. Maybe we've got a case of ancient historic bullying here. So Sarah gets upset and she says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Ishmael's laughing and Sarah's not. She wants Abraham to give Ishmael and his mother Hagar the boot. She wants them gone. She says, drive them out. And that's the same word that's used in Genesis 3 to talk about how God drove Adam out of the garden. We're talking about being banished. So she doesn't want Abraham to go over to the next town and, oh, honey, she wants him far away. She doesn't want to see either of them ever again. Now, why does Sarah react like that? That's kind of harsh, isn't it? Well, we know from what Genesis explains to us that after Ishmael was born, Hagar and Sarah did not get along very well. There's rivalry, there's envy, and you know, you can kind of understand because you've got, you know, the husband and he went with the slave woman. And the bottom line is that Sarah doesn't want Ishmael to inherit together with Isaac. And that's what she says. So what's this about? Well, God had made a covenant with Abraham, and he promised Abraham a land. And he also said to Abraham that your family is going to be a blessing to all the families in the world, a blessing to all the nations. But, you know, Abraham wasn't going to realize, he wasn't going to receive those promises in his lifetime. That was going to happen later. It was going to happen through his family. And in order for those promises to continue, he needed an heir. Ishmael, being Abraham's son, initially had a right to inherit that promise and to participate in that family line, but Sarah would have none of that, so she tells Abraham to send him packing, get him out of here. The text says that Sarah's request did not make Abraham happy, and here's here's a place where I found a detail that helped me understand this text. Um, Verse 11, Sarah's demand displeased Abraham greatly because Ishmael was his son. I'd, I'd never thought about it this way before. Abraham loved Ishmael. He was his boy. He's a little boy. Now he's 13, but he loves him, doesn't want to send him away. And so what Sarah says doesn't make him happy. It's painful. God's asking him to do something that's really hard. So here comes a surprise. God intervenes. And it's not surprising that God would intervene because he intervenes often. What's surprising is in favor of whom he intervenes, what side he takes in this dispute. Because we read this and we think, oh, poor Hagar. <laughs> you know, her son was a little out of line, but he's just 13. Give her a break. You don't got to send her out into the desert. So, I mean, to get a, get a feel for what this might have been like, imagine that you've got a boy in the local middle school. And uh, one day the principal calls you and says, well, you know, your son was bullying and he was mocking. And so you got to come in for a visit. But you go into the principal's office thinking, yeah, my son might get a little bit of detention or you know, he's going to have to do some hours of service or whatever. You sit down with the principal and he says, I want you gone. 
<laughs> you're out. No, not just your son. You too, the whole family. Move out of the school district. Banished. I mean, that would be over the top, right? Just for bullying. So we would expect God to intervene and say, oh, poor Hagar. Oh, Sarah, you're overreacting. But that's not what happens. God steps in and he takes Sarah's side. Now, he doesn't necessarily approve of all the rivalry and the jealousy and the motivations that might have been behind Sarah saying what she said. But she's right. And he says to Abraham, do what your wife says, because through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That's verse 12. Okay, so let's, let's stop here for just a second. We're in the first point of the sermon. And we need to see here that this is an important moment in the history of God's dealings with his people. God had promised that he would bring blessing to the world through Abraham. That blessing was going to come through Abraham's family, but Abraham's got to have a family. He's got to have offspring. You know, he needs a little boy running around in the camp who's someday going to grow up and be his heir. Otherwise, the promise is never going to come to fruition. But where's the heir? So in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, you're going to have a son. But Abraham's getting older, and Sarah's getting older, and it's like, well, where's the son? He's not coming. The years are going by, and they're not having children. So we read in Genesis 16 that Sarah and Abraham hatch a plan. Can we do some hand rubbing? But in a bad way. (laughs) They're going to hatch a plan. Sarah says to Abraham, this is in Genesis 16:2, Since the Lord has prevented me from having children, Perhaps I can have a family by her. Abe, we've got to have a kid. We need an heir, so let's try this. That's what happens in Genesis 16. And try it, they did. Sure enough, Abraham had a child by Hagar, a son who theoretically could have grown up to be his heir. But that's not how God wanted it. Galatians 4. You might be wondering, what does Galatians 4 have to do? Ishmael and Isaac, it just, yeah. These these two texts fit together. Paul says in Galatians 4 that Abraham blew it when he tried to have an heir with Hagar. Paul says, the son of the slave, that's Ishmael, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Does that sound good? Anybody want to have a son born according to the flesh? Doesn't sound good, does it? It's not good. So we could translate this maybe something like, He was born according to human effort. So that same word flesh shows up in Galatians 3.3, where Paul says to the Galatians, you've begun with the Spirit, so by faith, divine initiative, you've received this, and now you're trying to round it out through human effort, through the flesh. So the son, Ishmael, was born according to human effort. Abraham and Sarah were not trusting God's provision to have an heir, so they tried to get the job done themselves. In the history of God's dealings with his people, Ishmael had to go because God wasn't going to bring forth what he had promised to Abraham through he and Sarah's own efforts. Now, what does that have to do with us? Paul says in Galatians that the same principle applies to our justification. Justification is a biblical word, theological word. That means if you're justified, you've been forgiven and you've been declared good and acceptable to God. Paul says justification doesn't come through our own efforts. Just like that promised son wasn't going to come through Abraham and Sarah's efforts, justification doesn't come to people through our own 
efforts. God's not going to bring his blessing in that way. Now, this is surprising, again, and it's counterintuitive. I have a friend who was raised evangelical, went to a prestigious evangelical university, was a member for many years of an evangelical church, and he later converted to Roman Catholicism. And in his, the process of his conversion, he and I dialogued and we debated a bit. And one thing that he said to me was something to the effect that it's not fair for God to grant eternal life in exchange for nothing. You get the logic? Okay, so, so, so what he's saying in his view was that God's justice must require some contribution on our part. That's the way a lot of people think about how God relates to sinful people. But that's not what the scripture teaches. Again, in Galatians 4, Paul quotes Sarah. Isn't that interesting? So we think, oh, Sarah's mad and she's... Paul quotes Sarah. <laughs> she's right. What she says about Ishmael and Isaac, the son of the slave is not going to share in the inheritance. Ishmael's not going to share in the inheritance. And he quotes that in Galatians 4 because it reflects this principle. Precisely, God's forgiveness and his acceptance will be had not by human effort, but only by divine provision. That's the only way. Those who trust in their own efforts to get right with God are going to be cast out on the last day, like Ishmael was back in Genesis 21. Outside of the realm of blessing, those who rely on their own efforts. Only those who trust in the divine provision in the person of Jesus Christ will share in the blessing that was promised to Abraham. Ultimately, that blessing is life. Galatians talks about life, eternal life. Only those who trust in divine provision in the person of Jesus Christ will receive eternal life. This is crucial. This is the Bible's central message, and we can't hear it enough. So maybe it sounds a little bit repetitive, but you know what? Uh, Fallen human beings are all born with this factory default setting, spiritual default setting. You know what the default settings are? You got your device, you got your phone, you got your computer, and it comes programmed like it already works. It already does things before you start putting apps on it. Well, people after the fall, Adam into sin, were all born with this spiritual default setting, and here it is. I got this. You know, I'm a pretty good person. I'm decent. Compared to that guy over there, I'm doing pretty good. So if God exists and there's a judgment, well, he'll look at me and of course he'll let me in. I got my acts together. That's our default setting. And Paul writes to the, to the Galatians and he says, no, you don't got this. You cannot pull this off on your own. He insists with the Galatians that they have to continue to trust only in Jesus, if they want to stay right with God. So this warning is still valid today. There are many professing evangelicals who slide off into other religious traditions that teach one form or another of self-reliance. And increasingly, this isn't all the rage in Spain yet, but it is here. There's people who deconvert, right? Am I saying that right? The deconversions. So you've got evangelicals, high-profile evangelicals even, who are walking away from the faith entirely and just declaring themselves to be unbelievers. Well, that too is also a form of self-reliance because to not believe in Jesus is it's to say, I can do this. I can sort my life out 
by myself. That is like Hagar, Abraham, trying to have an heir through Hagar. I got this. I can do it myself. And God says no. So this is the first point of the sermon. That blessing, justification, acceptance with God, which results in eternal life, eternal blessing. God says, this is not going to be had by human effort. Only through my provision. And he makes the case for that by sending Ishmael away. Abraham, Sarah, you tried to do it through your own efforts. That's not how I want to do it. You're going to have to rely on me. So let's go on to the second point. We're going to see how Abraham, he obeys. God's asking him to do something really hard and he's going to obey. We're going to ask, why? How? How could he obey like that? Abraham banishes Hagar and the boy. And there's a little detail in the text. There's two details that I want us to catch. The first one is in verse 14. It says that Abraham rose early in the morning to go do what God had called him to do. These same words appear in the very next chapter. What happens in the next chapter? Abraham's going to take his other beloved son, Isaac, up on the mountain, and he's willing to sacrifice him. Well, Abraham doesn't just dilly around and sort of take off in the afternoon with Isaac. He gets up early in the morning. The exact same words, do you see? So twice, God calls Abraham to hand over his beloved son, apparently unto death. Twice, Abraham gets up early in the morning, and he obeys. Abraham treats Hagar with compassion. He doesn't give her much. He gives her some bread. He gives her some water. But you kind of get the sense that he thinks that somehow God's going to save this situation. And he has a reason to. So he sends Ishmael away. But God's already told him something. God's told him, I'm going to make Ishmael into a great nation. So Abraham's got this promise that he can hold on to. He sends Ishmael away. And he and Hagar wander in the wilderness. Verse 14. So after a little while of wandering in arid lands, the water runs out, Ishmael gets dehydrated, Hagar thinks the end is near, lays Ishmael down under a bush, and she goes about a bow shot away. Why a bow shot? What's Ishmael going to be when he grows up? He's going to be an archer. Yeah, it's little details in the text that are interesting. Hagar says, let me not look on the death of the child. End is near. Maybe she's praying. Maybe not. It's hard to know for sure, but God hears. But God doesn't hear Hagar. He hears the boy crying. And what does Ishmael mean? It means God hears. There's another play on words there. God hears Ishmael crying, and he comes down and he speaks to Hagar. And he says to her, well, here's, he's, he, he gives her the promise, the same promise he'd given to Abraham. He tells her, I'm going to make your son into a great nation. And then, another detail that's going to help us understand the text, crucial. Hagar opens her eyes. Hagar opens her eyes. What does she see? She sees a well. She draws water from the well. And that's the provision that saves Ishmael's life. Genesis 22. Abraham's about to bring the knife down on Isaac. He's about to sacrifice his son. And he lifts up his eyes. And what does he see? He sees a ram tangled up in the bushes, which is the provision which saves his other son. See that? Twice, God calls Abraham to do something really hard. Twice, Abraham obeys, he goes out, he's ready to do it. Twice, God intervenes, and through his provision, Abraham's beloved sons are saved. 
So how could Abraham be so radically obedient? The text says he got up early in the morning to do this deed. Um, What might get you out of bed early in the morning to do something that hard? I mean, I'm thinking coffee would help. But I'll tell you what, even the strongest Spanish espresso would not be enough to have me ready to do something as hard as what God asked Abraham to do. What got Abraham out of bed early in the morning, ready to obey, ready to hand over his beloved sons? Well, I can tell you what it was not. Abraham did not think that he needed to obey God in order to get right with him. Abraham didn't think that he somehow needed to be more deserving of God's favor. He didn't think that maybe there were just a few commands that he still had to obey in order for that promise to someday be inherited or for him to be worthy of God's blessing. That is not what he thought. Now that may sound surprising as well. Because intuitively, we might think that if Abraham's acceptance with God doesn't somehow hinge on his obedience, then maybe he's not going to be so motivated. I'll explain this too. So my now Roman Catholic friend, another argument that he used with me in favor of Roman Catholicism was this. He said that, oh, there's so many evangelicals that are lukewarm and they're lackadaisical and they don't take holiness seriously. Is he right? Sadly, he is. I think that's true. But his proposed solution was to accept a religious system where cooperation or participation or collaboration becomes necessary in order to be accepted by God. So in other words, why should I obey if I don't have some skin in the game? That's the idea. And that's how a lot of people think. And not just, so I'm talking about Roman Catholics, my friend is a Roman Catholic, evangelicals. I've read evangelicals who say that if works don't play a part in our final acceptance by God, that it bruises the nerve of Christian obedience. That is not how Abraham thought. How do we know? Because in Genesis 15.6, Abraham heard this fantastic promise from God that was just way beyond anything he could have imagined. What did he do? Did he start working? (laughs) Oh God, I'm going to get ready. I'm going to be worthy so you can give me this promise. Abraham believed, and his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Right there. All he did was trust. He trusted that God would do what he said, and God said, yes, you are righteous, and you can be my friend. And Paul picks up on this. Paul uses Abraham as an example. All throughout Galatians, it's also in Romans. And Abraham is an example in Paul of being accepted by God just because he believed. Unlike... (laughs) the people who were trying to deceive the Galatians, Abraham didn't think that he somehow needed to solidify his standing with God through his own effort. So what got Abraham out of bed early in the morning? It was his faith. Abraham had a hard time trusting God. Yeah, beautiful woman here, she's not my wife, it's my sister. Right? That happened. Or the Sarah and uh, the, the Hagar thing and trying to have an heir through his own effort. He wasn't really trusting God in Genesis 16. But we find Abraham, Genesis 21, Genesis 22. He's older, he's wiser, and he knows that he can trust God. God says to him, banish your first beloved son. Banish him. That's hard. (laughs) 
But he also tells him, I will make him into a great nation. And Abraham believed that. And he sent Ishmael and Hagar away. Genesis 22. Even harder, God says, sacrifice your other beloved son. But he had also told him that Isaac would be his heir. So Abraham didn't know how it was going to work out, but he knew somehow God would solve the problem. And so there he was. He was ready to obey that super difficult command. Abraham trusted, and he was ready to obey what God had asked him to do. I want to be ready to obey like that, don't you? Let me give you just three examples of how trusting God's promises can help us to obey in difficult and radical ways. Number one, wouldn't you like to be honest all the time? Wouldn't you like to be honest, even in those situations where you know it's going to cost you? What's going to give you the strength to speak up, to be honest, when you know there's going to be consequences? Um, I'll give you an example. So in the, in the first hour, in the Sunday school hour, I, I talked to you about Jose. He was one of our elders in, in, in our church, new elder, just right. And he's, he's a man of integrity. So he was on the job. He's working for his boss, who's a multimillionaire, powerful guy. They were in the office together, and somebody called. Jose picked up the phone. Whoever was on the phone asked for his boss. So Jose's like this, like, hey, so-and-so wants to talk to you. What do you think his boss said? Tell him I'm not here. Ah, uh, what's Jose going to do? So if he says, yeah, my boss isn't here, maybe he gains the favor of his boss. If he tells the truth, maybe he incurs his wrath. Jose told the truth. The reason why Jose told the truth, and he tells the story, is because he believed in that moment that God would work everything for good. He knew, actually, by telling the truth, that maybe his job was on the line. And you know what happened? It doesn't always work out this way. His boss initially was very angry with him, but later, Jose got a promotion. Because <laughs> his boss said, I know I can trust you. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I wish I could promise that it always works out like that. <laughs> I can't. But that's it. Romans 8.28, God works all things for the good of those who love him, those who have been called according to his purpose. You know, if we could really trust that in those moments where we're faced with that decision, should I be honest, should I tell a little lie? If we could really trust Romans 8.28, we'd be more likely to be honest. So example number two, wouldn't you like to be bolder sharing your faith? I would. Speak up for Jesus in those situations. I mean, you know what it's like now you're talking to somebody and you can feel the conversation's kind of going over here and you could sort of turn it to the gospel or the Bible somehow, but ah, am I going to know what to say? How's the person going to react? And what if they pull out the problem of evil? And, you know, well, what's going what's to help us in those moments? I think we need to trust two things. First of all, uh, God's sovereign and he intervenes in our lives. How many times have you had the experience where God gives you something to say that you haven't thought about five seconds earlier? I'm not saying that we shouldn't prepare for those evangelistic encounters. First Peter 3, we should be ready, we should prepare and be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have. But it's also true that God gives us sometimes what to say right there in the moment. Can I just open my mouth and trust that he's going to give me words? And there's more. I'll admit Sometimes I'm a little hesitant to share my faith. I think, man, this guy, you know, the soccer dad over here that we're friends, but oh, he's so far away from the Lord. Oof, I mean, this is hard. Can we believe that God's word never comes back void? Can we believe that? If we did believe that, I wonder if we would be more evangelistic. So another story that I just heard recently, 
this lady, she was sharing her faith, trying to share her faith with, I think it was a university professor, intellectual, really smart guy. And this lady, she's talking, and she, she tells the story. She's like, oh, I just felt so clumsy, and I don't know what I was saying, and I felt so awkward, and this guy's so smart, and my words aren't going to have any impact. Well, this sophisticated university professor came to faith. And the power of God's word. So the university professor tells the story from a different perspective. And he says, this lady was so articulate and everything she said made sense. (laughs) Can we believe that God can do that? I think if we could trust that more, we'd be more likely to share our faith and take risks. Do you want to give generously to others in need? Well, we have to, again, trust God. So the, the, the scriptural call or sort of um, standard in terms of giving is, yikes, I just got into, it's not a percentage, we'll just say it like that. <laughs> it's not a percentage. We're called to give sacrificially. Ooh, that's hard. That's hard. What could motivate a person to give sacrificially to the church, to people in need, neighbors, missions, whatever? First of all, trusting that God provides. As we give, as we're generous, he's generous with us. We've had this experience so many times. Um, I mean, we all live by faith. I'm not saying that as missionaries we live more by faith than anybody else, but we've got this account and support and donations come in and so forth. And there have been numerous times where we have made a donation in Spain to something special and like, ah, that hurts. And I'm not kidding. Like a week later, bam! Donation comes into our account even bigger than what we just gave away. Can we believe that God will do that? Can we believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive? That's a promise. It's hard to believe. (laughs) But we need to believe it. To the degree that we believe it, we will give sacrificially, we will give joyfully. So may God give us the grace to trust like Abraham did, to trust that he will care for us and he'll provide for our needs as we obey him. I want to finish with this. So, in order to grow in holiness, let's not imagine that somehow our right standing with God hinges on our obedience. Let's not try to prod ourselves in that way. Instead, we need to learn to trust God like the older Abraham did. God showed Abraham that he was trustworthy. He did it a bunch of times. And he's shown us even more, even more, You know, Abraham looked forward. He didn't know it was 2,000 years, but it was. He could see Jesus as a shadow. That's it. We see Jesus as he's revealed in the New Testament with all the interpretation, with all the explanation. God has shown us just how trustworthy he is in the person of Jesus Christ. So think about it. 2,000 years after Abraham, Abraham has an heir, the promised child Isaac, born miraculously. 2,000 years later, there's another promised child. He's also born miraculously. He's Abraham's final heir. And he's the one, here I go again, I'm having a hard time this morning. Where's the tissue, Craig? I need it. (laughs) Yeah, so he comes and he obeys all the way to the point of death. And he deserves the inheritance. That's why he gets it. He deserves eternal life. He earns it. And then he shares that blessing with everybody else who will trust in him. We are children of Abraham, not because we were born naturally into that family, but because supernaturally God intervened. He changed our hearts so that we would trust in the person of Jesus Christ. 
<clears throat> so we inherit through Jesus what was promised. And it, Romans 8.23, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's already done the hard part. He sent his son to die on a cross. It's done. He's risen from the dead, so how's he not going to do the easy things for him? Nothing's hard. But from our perspective, what was hard was to send Jesus and have him die on the cross. That's done. The easy stuff. How's he not going to take care of that for us? May God give us grace to trust him more. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the scriptures, for the Old Testament, for the New Testament, and for the way that you so clearly tell us about your promises and your blessings and that ultimate blessing of forgiveness and acceptance with you which leads to eternal life. We're so grateful for that and for the explanation, even in Genesis 21, about how that comes by your provision and not by our efforts. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to resist the temptation to think that somehow it depends on us. Jesus has done everything. Pray that you'd help us to be obedient. You've already done the hard thing. Help us to trust you for the little things. Help us to trust that you will provide for us, you'll protect us, and you'll give us everything we need to serve you faithfully in this life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.